I definitely went with the assumption of like, okay, I have this certainty, this truth that I need to share with others. But what really took me by surprise by the end was how I discovered God already at work there. And I discovered God in my neighbor's lives. You're listening to Fuel Radio, inspiration and training to fuel your day. Now here's your host, Rod Jans. Hi there, and welcome to Fuel Radio. On the line with me today, actually on video as well, I have Trudy Taylor-Smith. I have her, her book here, and uh, I'm just going to read what it says off of the book in order to introduce her. She'll introduce herself by way of her own story as we get going here. Our guest is Trudy Taylor-Smith. She spent two and a half years living and working in the slums of India. She and her husband, Andy, currently live in Vancouver, BC, where she accompanies asylum seekers through the process of making a refugee claim, and resettling in Canada. Welcome to Fuel Radio, Trudy. Thanks, Rod. Good to be with you today. I should have checked with you. You are still working with the organization that helps people settle in Canada. Is that, is <laughs> well, that right? it's, it's interesting that you ask, actually, because okay. <laughs> um, I, I left that particular organization last fall in order to pursue the legal profession. So I'm actually, um, I'm currently working at a poverty law nonprofit downtown, um, and I'll be starting at law school in the fall with the aim of uh, practicing refugee law. So this is kind of the next step for me in supporting asylum seekers. Oh, neat. Well, I know, I know you a little bit and I know how bright you are. So that kind of makes sense to me. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I, I can imagine that you'll, you'll get through law school and you'll be able to, to do that. So that's good for you. Ah, thanks. So I know you're... I know your husband, Andy, and uh, we were working together a year or so ago, and um, right. he, he told me, well, actually, we knew, I've known you for a few years, and we knew that the book mm. was, that you were working on it, and then uh, it finally came out, and uh, I got one right away. I was really, really excited to get a hold of a copy, but maybe you could start out by just telling us a little bit about the journey of writing the book. Like, where did the... Mm. Where did the idea originate from? And just take us maybe from the uh, sort of putting the seed in the ground to mm. where the book was, was actually released. Because I know that in itself was quite a, a right. journey, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Well, the earliest kernel of the book came in the form of blogs and just journal entries that I wrote during the time that we were living in India. Um, and at that point, um, you know, writing was a, a survival thing for me. It was a way of making sense of our day-to-day experiences and then also trying to find, find God, find deeper meaning in, in some of that external chaos that we were dealing with. But after we um, moved to Canada, then I began considering a book project in a more focused way. I had more time on my hands and I really wanted to find a way, first and foremost, to help myself understand what I had been through but then also to share um, with a broader audience some of what we learned from our neighbors and from our um, experiences and relationships living with people in poverty. Mm. So were you thinking about writing a book while you were in India or did it, did it just sort of occur to you when you got home? You know, the thought did cross my mind um, in yeah. India, but it was always kind of this dream that I put on the shelf for a later date because... Yeah, life was uh, pressing in on all sides and not leaving that kind of space. Um, but after moving here, because I was not, am still not a Canadian citizen, um, I, I had to get some visa stuff worked out in order to be able to uh, work. And so I had a whole year of sort of forced uh, writing retreat um, because I, I didn't have the option of doing other things. And I think it was really, really great for me because... 
the process of writing the book became almost like a practice of Lectio Divina for me with my own life, sifting through um, these old experiences and finding new layers of meaning. Yeah, we'll get to that. I know you obviously in reading the book had a lot to process <laughs> when you got home. So I can, I can see that if you don't mind, like I know personally, I could really relate to some of the things that you wrote about in the book about your own upbringing mm. um, and your religious background. Um, yeah. You know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Cause it seems like a big part of the book and what you were sifting through mm. was the ideology and the things that you had grown up with and now trying to just put your head around it, not being in North America, being in a, mm-hmm. a totally different culture where things work a lot differently. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe you could just, let's, let's go back to your upbringing and then we'll next we'll, we'll visit yeah. India. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I mean the book, it is um, a memoir of my spiritual journey. And so that begins with um, what I like to call building a, a strong container Um, a very strong uh, box of certainty that helps me to understand the world and God and who I was in it. Um, And for me, that container came from uh, the Southern Baptist tradition. I was raised in a small town in Texas. Church was very central to our community and to our lives. And the religion that I grew up with um, was one that was quite centered on um, fear and guilt. There was a lot of emphasis on yeah, on sin and on um, kind of the judgment of God and what that means for the present and for the future. Um, And so as a kid, I took that all very seriously, internalized that. And, you know, there was, um, there was comfort in, in knowing that I knew uh, what was right and wrong. Um, But there was also, you know, fear and trepidation in, in trying to uh, meet the very high standards uh, that I was taught about. Mm -hmm. We should just say Trudy's talking to us on her lunch break she's out in <laughs> beautiful vancouver yeah just show us around yeah. a little bit trudy what sure. yeah, give us a bit a of a view there here. yeah <laughs> um i'm on top of the false creek uh community center right now so oh good i was wondering why nobody water. was wa- yeah i was wondering why nobody was walking by but you're on the, you're on a rooftop <laughs> yeah <then. laughs> i was very fortunate to find um a, a private quiet place here yeah. um but yeah it's a lovely overcast day so no rain, a little bit of light filtering through, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I liked what you just said about building a container. Like, I think that's, it's, it's necessary for everyone in a way, like it's a healthy thing yeah. to build that container. And then, but then as we mature and grow in our, our spiritual walk, there seems to be things that, that mm. don't work anymore and that we, we need to let go of. And um, yeah. I think being in, well, just, Tell, before we get there, let's, let's, mm. let's, let's take the, let's talk about the next part of the journey. So sure. just tell us about going to India and give us a little bit of background information about that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so growing up, I was uh, taught a lot about missions, about the idea that as, as a Christian in the world, I should be looking for ways to, to do good in the world um, and also to uh, specifically to help others uh, become Christians, uh, to find the same truth that I had. And so the journey to India really started from that uh, framework um, of what I understood at the time as missions. But it also came out of a really strong sense of social justice. A lot of my experiences in university involved studying abroad in the majority world, um, in developing countries, being exposed uh, not only to poverty, but to the big gap between the wealth in parts of my own country. 
um, and poverty around the world. And this really strong sense um, that grew in me of understanding that to be a follower of Jesus meant to, uh, to follow his way of bringing the kingdom, bringing a, a new social order according to God's love for the poor and God's desire to see uh, justice and flourishing. And so uh, we moved to India as part of a Christian community that was committed to living in solidarity with people in poverty. Um, so the idea was to remove as many barriers to relationship as possible by living as much as we could at the same level as our neighbors. And so that meant, you know, living in uh, a 10 foot by 12 foot uh, brick uh, dwelling, sharing uh, a bathroom with others, going without a lot of the, the basic amenities that um, are kind of normal here in the West. Yeah. How was that? Like it, was that better, worse? <laughs> it, yeah. I, I know from reading the book, but maybe just let our listeners know. Totally. How, what was that like in terms of your own expectations? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I, it sounds odd to say, but I, I think the basic living conditions in the end uh, were not even close to being the most uh, difficult thing. I think, you know, it's, it's amazing what you get used to. And, and there was a lot of joy, I think, that came in living simply. We actually really appreciated the fact that there was nothing to hide from us. Like, how much garbage are we actually producing? How much water are we actually using day to day? Um, and there was a lot of joy and, and shared life that came out of um, sharing a lot of outdoor space with our, the rest of our neighbors and being really creative in how we used our own space. But yeah, there were definitely some times that were more difficult than others. I recall one of our rooms that we lived in literally had holes where we could see into the next room. Um, the tenants there were a couple of um, university students, these young guys who liked to stay up late um, with their friends, studying and listening to Bollywood music. And I recall that, yeah, there were several nights of us kind of like arguing through the wall about what time should it be when all the lights would go off and all the music would stop playing. And then I also recall some really, really hot um, overnight temperatures where it was quite difficult to sleep. You know, it would maybe be 40 degrees Celsius and you're just literally <laughs> laying a wet sheet over yourself and hoping to fall asleep by the time that it's evaporated. Yeah, and often, you know, power outages would happen at those times too. So you'd be kind of suffocating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So really, I mean, even the philosophy of that organization that you went mm. with, that really created sort of a rub <laughs> for a lack of a better term, didn't it? Like yeah. compared to your, uh, that's why I wanted to talk about the two things is you mm. know, your uh, typical missionary and I grew up that way too was the, the yeah. you know the main goal was to go and and save souls I actually went mm. on a 10-month trip where that's what we did we were there oh, to wow. to evangelize yeah. and but it seems like the organization that you were with prioritized uh, being with people and mm. and and just loving them mm. over 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 saving people's souls necessarily yeah. is, is that a correct assumption um, it's true. I think there's a bit of a continuum within the organization, but my experience was that the policy they had of spending the whole first year just shutting up, you know, listening, getting to know people before we assumed that we knew how to help was really transformative for me. And I also found that, yeah, I, I definitely went with the assumption of like, okay, I have this certainty, this truth that I need to share with others. But what really took me by surprise by the end was how I discovered God already at work there. And I discovered 
guided my neighbors' lives. Um, we lived in a majority Muslim community. And, you know, through living alongside people, celebrating various uh, festivals with them and being um, invited into the celebration of things like Eid and Muharram, um, we really began to see that we did not have such a, a firm hold on truth or such an exclusive hold on the truth as we had imagined. Um, and so that was part of, you know, what began to break down this container a little bit was finding God outside the church, God outside the Bible, God um, existing beyond anything I had experienced before and in ways that were not familiar to me. So that's really, it's, that's interesting. I mean, it, you, first of all, it sounds like you had to, they encouraged you to not go there assuming you mm. knew what people needed. Yeah. So you kind, of, you kind of had to hold back and it almost forced sort of a, a contemplative seeing, didn't it? Like you had to just oh, remain, totally. remain open and and uh, try to try to see God at work, and and it probably mm. that that uh, have approaching it that way helped you to maybe see God in ways that mm. you didn't didn't expect. What, yeah. what what were some of those ways? Like I, I, you mentioned some people in the book mm. and that sort of thing. That, uh, but yeah, what were some of those ways where you where you saw a God that that was kind of new to you or you didn't mm. quite expect? Yeah. Um, Well, for instance, uh, there was this one neighbor of ours. She was um, an older Muslim widow, and she was one of the poorest people in the community. You know, she was uh, working at a subsistence level to support her family and even several grandchildren. But I remember that when another of our friends lost her husband in the community, it was this uh, older widow who um, was probably the most sacrificial and generous person in the community in terms of providing her with meals And so, you know, that really challenged us to think, huh, okay, Um, you know, here we are thinking we need to come and and share with these people, you know, God's way so that they can learn how to live um, Mm -hmm. in generous and compassionate ways and understand the love of God. And we felt like, wow, like actually our neighbors um, in poverty who have been living very simply and living, you know, in this dependence on God for a very long time are are actually much uh, more generous and far more familiar with taking that risk of caring for others, even at their own expense, than, than we are. And so that was a really amazing thing. I think yeah. another maybe aspect of the divine that, that I really uh, engaged with while in India was the idea of God as feminine as well as masculine, um, and just exploring what it meant um, that I had grown up in a context where God was only seen as male. You know, it's interesting, I think in our own culture, we can be so unaware of our blind spots because they're very familiar to us. But when we go to another culture, you know, we have uh, some of that insight as an outsider at times that certain things jump out at us. And so I think um, within some strands of Islam that I was seeing, I was thinking, now, wait a minute, this is so patriarchal or why is God only male? Or why is it that my female neighbors cover their heads um, in prayer the same way that they do when men enter the room? And doesn't that create distance Um, But through reflecting on that experience, I began to realize, huh, actually, my own view of God is not that much different. And so I I began to um, explore what it meant to relate to God as a mother, as well as a father, and as as a God who was able to uh, relate fully with my experiences as a woman, which in India frequently involved, you know, sexual harassment and you know, I was seeing a lot of violence um, being done to women and children at the hands of men. And so finding 
that God was not just male <laughs> was really helpful in oh, okay. being able to continue relating. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was really hard, wasn't for you, wasn't it? Like the way women mm. were treated was, uh, th- that was yeah. really difficult for you to witness, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. going back to your earlier question, I, I mentioned that uh, the simple living conditions weren't the hardest thing. Uh-huh. I think the hardest thing was the violence that we witnessed and experienced in our community, you know, and it's, it's not because, you know, people in our neighborhood were naturally more violent than anyone else, but it was just a setting in which there was so much stress and there was, there were so many, um, you know, cycles of intergenerational trauma that were being handed down from one generation to the next. Um, mm. And there was uh, a high degree of cultural acceptability for for beating one's wife, for beating one's children, and, and people perceiving that as as none of their business if it was within the family. Yeah. Interesting. So for you personally, like I think we talked about this before we started talking. I'm not sure if we talked about this already, but mm. <laughs> I mean the book turned out a lot differently than I I don't know what I expected, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I love the way that this whole I love the way you wrestled with things and mm. the way that this journey kind of just changed you. So, yeah. um, and, and then again, I said like, I could really relate to your ideological struggles and, yeah. and that sort of thing. <laughs> so what were some of your own biggest, we don't want to give too much of the book away, but what, yeah, what, sure. were, <laughs> <laughs> what were some of your own, your biggest takeaways that remain to this day? Mm. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I mean, so the book is organized into sort of four movements. So there's certainty, there's the unraveling of certainty, and then there's failure and grace, and there's healing. And so, um, you know, when we moved to India, we were thinking we're going to be here for life. And I think um, not only were our identities very tied up, Andy's and mine, in, in the work that we were doing, the kind of life that we were living, but also um, our sense of worth or security and being loved by God was very tied up in, in needing to be people who are able to, to do these good things or live in this uh, just way. Um, and so I think the experience of, of failure, of hitting a limit that we didn't realize was there and coming to a point of realizing, oh, actually we can't do this big thing that we set out to do. Initially, that felt like you know, avoid opening up or this, this free fall kind of starting where you're not sure where it's going to stop, which is very scary. But yeah, I think the biggest surprise has been finding that actually my deepest healing has come through that, that I don't think I would have been able to deconstruct fully the, some of the more damaging ideas that I had about God and faith or even about myself. If I hadn't gone through that, um, it was only through kind of having to, to lose this whole self-made identity that I think I was able to claim a deeper identity based on just the unconditional love of God that's uh, totally, you know, disconnected from anything that I do or, or have or what others think of me. Yeah, and I think there's been a real freedom that's come from realizing that, that I can lose my certainty, I can lose my kind of confidence of knowing that I'm always right and, and really enter into the freedom of, of being able to say, I don't know. So knowing God rather than knowing about God and, and being able to kind of rest in mystery and paradox and not need to have it all figured out. That's been a huge uh, change for me. Wow. 
Yeah. So <laughs> does that continue to surface for you? Like, it seems like, I mean, you're such a bright and capable person. I wonder if that, does that continue, does it continue to, be... to surface? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we live in a culture in North America where we're very much encouraged to build our identity on what we do, especially, you know, um, rack up accomplishments and post about things on social media. And I, so I don't think that that's something that you can just kind of finish once and for all and continue to live in the West and not struggle with. I, I find for myself that, um, yeah, the spiritual journey and, and my healing journey is often like a spiral. So I'll, I'll come back to similar things again and again, but each time it's sort of being dealt with at a deeper level. And so I find that there are still times when I'm tempted to, you know, want to define myself in terms of like, oh, well, I'm going to law school or I work here or you know, just, yeah, wanting to feel secure about who I am because of these external things that I can point to. But yeah, but I think each time that that surfaces, um, because of my experiences now, I'm able to pretty quickly remember like, oh, no, no, this is that thing again. It's, it's, it's <laughs> I don't have to deal with this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's Does interesting. Your question? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting that you came back from the trip and even the book, you don't come back with all the answers. Like your mm. biggest, your biggest lessons seem to come through, through yeah. failure actually. Right. Yes. definitely. <laughs> failure yeah. and, and unknowing. Yeah. And unknowing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. And the journey continues. I mean, I remember towards the end of writing the book, um, I was sort of starting to wonder like, gosh, well, I don't know when, when do I know that I'm done? Cause you know, I, my journey continues and you know, and a friend of mine, my pastor actually was like, well, you're never done. The book just has to stop somewhere. You know, yeah. this is just about this one part of your life. It doesn't have to, you know, encompass uh, all the things that you're going to learn or, or become or the ways that you're going to change after this. And that was very liberating to hear because, um, yeah, now that I'm living in, in the after, things continue to shift and change and my, my journey continues. Will you write again, do you think, or... What are your plans as far as that's concerned? Yeah, well, I would love to. I mean, I've, I've written quite a bit of uh, freelance, so just articles here and there on topics related to faith and justice, whether that is, you know, in this context, uh, looking at who, are, who is the other in our uh, society, whether that's uh, immigrants and refugees or other people on the margins. But I, I would love to write further in the future. So, um, I mean, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, I am about to go back to school. So I, I imagine that that's going to be quite an intense season. But yeah, I, I'm hoping that this is my first book. I'm planning on it not being my last. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I would love to uh, find ways too to bring uh, particularly refugee narratives into the spotlight. What, what have your conversations been like with people who are involved in justice? Because I think sometimes, mm. this is probably just an assumption of mine more than a reality, although I think mm. I, I do see it sometimes is yeah. that people who are involved in justice type things uh, really are out to kind of save the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but yeah, what have your conversations been like with people who are involved in, in yeah. justice? That's a really good question. I'm just thinking, I'm, I, I don't know if I've ever said all these things to a particular person that I was about <laughs> to say. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I try to kind of let people know that, you know, there's a danger to taking ourselves too seriously mm. um, because I think, you know, and I'll just speak from my own background. I mean, growing up as a, a white English speaking woman, I think there is this white savior complex that we can carry. And that's dangerous, not just for ourselves, but for others. Um, if we just make other people 
objects or background characters in our own personal narrative of, um, you know, saving the world, um, that's, that's really dehumanizing and destructive. That's not, um, mm. that's not actually going to feed into a vision of any kind of real justice. But I think that trying to save the world is also dangerous uh, for us. And, and I think that's the side that I have probably had more conversations with people about is just sharing the ways that I had to discover that, you know, respecting my own limits and caring for myself wasn't selfish. It was a legitimate need because I, I am a person who matters as much as, you know, other people that I may be trying to help. And so there's this lack of authenticity if I'm, you know, trying to work towards uh, their own well-being, but I don't uh, work towards my own, then, you know, how am I, how am I really able to share uh, something that I haven't experienced for myself? I always kind of like to finish up with a sort of a, a uh, time capsule or not a time capsule, but a <laughs> time traveling uh, question. Like oh, if fun. you, if, if you were to go back and what advice would you give to yourself and Andy uh, ah. if, if you were heading off to India again, or even, even writing a book, what, what are a couple yeah. tips that you would give to yourself and maybe to other people? I think one thing would be that I would probably uh, tell myself to slow down a bit, to be patient with, not having all the answers and yeah, just to recognize that, yeah, that I'm, I'm not responsible for saving everyone. I think when we went in at the beginning, um, you know, we built lots of relationships very quickly and we got very involved and, you know, we were constantly at hospital with people or um, connecting people with lawyers or intervening in various situations. Um, and I, I think as a result of that, we, you know, eventually reached a point where, uh, particularly, I was quite burnt out. And I think, yeah, I would have just liked to let myself know that um, it was okay to, to take more regular time to rest and to slow down and to, yeah, just realize that at the end of the day, I'm not responsible for everyone and everything. <laughs> yeah. Do you think yeah. you would have tried to find a bit of a rhythm, a different rhythm maybe? Is that a, is that a yeah, I good think, way to put um, you know, this is an interesting question because what what's going on in my head as I'm trying to answer it is I'm wondering, oh, would there have been a way that we could have stayed or would that have been a good thing? And I'm not <laughs> sure that it would have been. Like right. I just, yeah, I don't know. Just knowing who we were at the time, I'm not sure that there's anything we could have been told that would have changed the course almost because I feel like what we learned from it wasn't so much head knowledge as, as this lived experience and this sort of deep knowing that maybe only could have come through kind mm -hmm. of the struggle of playing out our own intensity and, and, you know, foibles. Yeah. But rhythms would be helpful. If someone else was going to go do this, I would say, yes, rhythms are helpful <laughs> of rest and yeah, yeah, just recognizing that there are other legitimate parts of life besides your work. Well, thank you so much for joining us. If people are wondering the book, this is going to come up backwards, but uh, I'm going to change the view here. <laughs> yes. uh, the book is God in Disguise. Mm -hmm. And I really encourage you to get a copy. Uh, Trudy said it's still available on Amazon. Is it also available on your website? Like, are there other ways that people can get yeah. it? Um, I mean, if you go to my website, um, there's a page set up for the book. It's available on Amazon, on IndieBound, um, on a few other places. But yeah, it's available pretty much worldwide, uh, whether you live in Canada or India or Japan or Australia or whatever. It's, it's out there. Good. So. And it's Trudy, TrudySmith.com is the, is the website. If people yeah, wanna, Trudy, yeah, Trudy D. Smith, which is confusing. Right. <laughs> my, Trudy my D. Smith. My middle name used to be 
it used to start with a D. So trudydsmith.com. Okay, great. So yeah. if people are looking for this, uh, the, what we just talked about, uh, we'll have this information in our show notes so they can, they can click on it and look for it there. Are you doing any speaking? Just wondering, you're so articulate, are you? <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully some more podcasts. Um, yeah. But uh, and, and do check out my blog as well. I'm right. uh, regularly upgrading uh, or updating my blog uh, with reflections on current events and, yeah, just kind of deeper cultural analysis or um, reflections for my spiritual journey. Great. But, yeah. Awesome. Well, it'll be fun to watch your journey. We'll have to have you back sometime and, and catch up and see where you're at. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> Both, both you and Andy that. live such interesting lives, so we'll, we'll have to do mm. that sometime. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. You've been listening to Fuel Radio. 